Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, Grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. May God bless his word to us. Please bow with me in prayer. Our God in heaven, we rejoice at the opportunity we have to gather together tonight. Thank you again for those that have come out to worship you and for those that are online live right now and in the future. We just pray that you'd bless this worship service, that you would receive unto yourself the glory, the honor, every, just all power, everything that we'd give you credit. We exalt you and we pray that you would be magnified. Use your word tonight in our hearts to conform us to the image of Christ, to save the lost. We pray, Father, that we might see uh, in our eyes in this life that we might see some of the fruit of what you do in hearts. We ask your blessing in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Good to have you. Thank you for being here tonight. Please take your Bibles and turn again back to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. I shared this morning that we're going to be doing a book study soon. It takes a while, at least a few weeks, just to get into the book and before I start a series... Sometimes people will suggest uh, a message, you know, hey, do you ever, why don't you preach on this? So many times, um, people do that, like, if they don't come to church much, um, a lot of times I'm like, well, I just actually did preach on that. Um, but recently, Tell Allah suggested, I've been thinking and praying, Lord, what, you know, I want to do a book study, and didn't have anything come to mind, and the other, the other week, Tell Allah, who comes every service who has legitimate reason to make a suggestion, uh, he said, hey, you know, why don't you preach through the book of Jeremiah? And it just felt right, you know. And, and I thought, wow, this, I was looking and praying for a book to study. And so now I'm, I'm knee-deep early on in the book of Jeremiah, and we're going to eventually preach it. I imagine it will take, take us maybe 10 years. No, I don't know how long it will take. 
Uh, but we're looking forward to it going into Jeremiah. But in the meantime, we're going to do some doctrinal studies. And the first one is going to be, uh, I'm guessing, my plan is it's a three-week study. Um, we're going to talk about imputation, which is a biblical doctrine that is so precious, surrounding the, uh, the precious truths of our salvation. And uh, so we're going to look at that. And because it's, uh, imputation has three aspects, I'll mention them tonight, or yeah, tonight, right now, I'm going to mention them. Uh, and so tonight we'll deal with part one, then part two, part three. Um, but let's talk about this word imputation and its meaning. It's, if you've read your English Bible, the word impute and the word imputation is found often. And uh, it actually, the word impute, or t- uh, that word in its scriptural usage denotes a threefold definition. Number one, attributing of something to a person, or charging of one with anything, or a setting of something to one's account. Now, it's important that you and I understand, we're going to look at this as we first do a little word study on the word impute. Um, In fact, let me just, let me go through some of this stuff here. The word that's used in the King James Version, uh, there's a Hebrew word, and there's a, a Hebrew, as you know, is the Old Testament, Greek is the New Testament, and there are two primary words, one in the Hebrew, one in the, in the Greek, that are translated to impute. But it's not the only way it's translated, and sometimes it's kind of a generic use. So, the Hebrew word is chashab, and the Greek word is logizomai. From, uh, the root word is lo, uh, logos, which is word. That's a very popular word in the Greek. Uh, both words occur frequently in the scriptures. And, and this is an important point. In a number of instances, the word simply means to think or to reckon. Uh, and, and so many times this word, either logizomai in the, in the Greek or chashab in the Hebrew, a lot of times it will be used. And sometimes it's translated reckon, sometimes it's translated impute or a few other things. And it's not talking about the doctrines of imputation like we talk about. It simply just means to think or to impute. So, a um, couple examples. In the, the Hebrew, Old Testament, the word chashab is translated in the King James Version by the word impute, Leviticus 7.18, Leviticus 17.4, 2 Samuel 19.19. It's also translated by the word reckon in 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 2. It's also translated to count, Leviticus 25.31. And in the New Testament, the Greek, logizomai, uh, it's translated with the verb to impute, Romans 4.6.8.11, all through Romans, 2 Corinthians 5.19, James 2.23. It's also translated with the verb to count, Romans 2.26, Romans 4.3, or to account, Galatians 3.6, and also the verb to reckon, In Romans 4, you'll see that word reckon several times. That's the Greek word legizomai. And and so understand that just if you you study the original language and that word pops up, the word impute, either of these words in the original language, it's not necessarily talking about what we're going to be talking about, the doctrine of imputation. So what is the doctrine of imputation? It's connected to three doctrines. Uh, and these, these are going to be the outline. The first one is what is commonly referred to as original sin. 
That's what we're going to look at tonight. That is, Adam's sin. You know when he ate the fruit? Anybody know what kind of fruit it was? Did you know that a recent study of the word Hebrew has brought out that it was a coconut? I'm just seeing how gullible you are. (laughs) Uh, No, we do not know what the fruit is. And of course, it's always depicted as an apple, but we don't know that. Uh, But Adam's sin, that original sin, was imputed to us. So Adam's sin was literally laid to our account. Now, when we talk about the doctrine of imputation, these three examples, the one tonight, the one next time, and the one after that, they're all in that context, when we're talking about the doctrine, it is referring, uh, it is like a bookkeeping term. We're going to charge something to his account. We're going to lay something to someone's account. And it's important that you realize, because sometimes people will try to insert uh, in the doctrine of, of imputation using a verse that has one of these original words in it, uh, and give it a meaning which the Bible does not teach. might give you some examples in the next week or so. Um, but let me read to you uh, what... So the three... First of all, here's the three doctrines. Original sin, that is, Adam's sin, his original sin, was imputed to us. We saw that in Romans 5. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men. That is... Adam, his sin, is the reason why you sin. His sin, his original sin, was passed on to us all. Number two, happened on Calvary, and that's the doctrine of the uh, the substitutionary atonement. And that is, our sin was laid to Jesus' account. He paid the penalty for our sin. And then the third one, which will be our last message, is that then because of what Jesus did on Calvary, His righteousness is then imputed to us. It's laid to our account. Now here's an important caveat in all three. And I want to read to you uh, from whatever source that I deleted accidentally. Uh, But trust me, there is a source to this. And it's not my words. (laughs) It is not meant. The act of imputation... Is, precise, is this name, and it is not meant, in three instances, it is not meant that Adam's sin was personally the sin of his descendants, but that it was set to their account so that they share in its guilt and penalty. Number two, it is not meant that Christ shares personally in the sins of men, but that the guilt of his people's sin was set to his account so that he bore its penalty. And that's what we're going to hit on next time. A very important point that there are some churches and and, uh, theologians out there which teach uh, a great uh, injustice about the substitutionary atonement and then about justification, that Jesus Christ was always the, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. And when he took on us, when he paid the penalty for our sin. He didn't become this vile, filthy wretch. He has always been the precious, pure Lamb of God that takes away our sins. Always. But God charged to His account our sin 
so that he bore the penalty of it. And then the third one has to do with justification. That now, because of what Christ did, his righteousness is charged to our account. And now this writer brings out, it is not meant that Christ's people are made personally holy or inwardly righteous by the imputation of his righteousness to them, but that his righteousness is set to their account so that they are entitled to all the rewards of that perfect righteousness. Now, Paul brings that out in Philippians 2. We'll probably look at that in our last message, how Paul says, he talks about all the things he used to depend on. You know, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, circumcised the eighth day, and he he gives all these things, all these righteous things that he boasted previously. And then he says, but what things were gained to me, now I count them lost, that I may know Christ. So, when Paul got saved, he stopped trusting in his righteousness. And he said, not having mine own righteousness, but the righteousness which is of Christ. So folks, the day you and I got saved, we don't then start to try to become worthy. It will always be Christ's righteousness that is our standing before Christ. Don't forget that. Not your performance. Because you'll have some good days. You ever have some good days holy wise? I mean, you woke up, you did your devotions, you prayed maybe longer than you normally prayed. You, the first few temptations, you like resisted them, and you're flying high. You're like, I am so spiritual today. Folks, that's, that's not our righteousness in Christ. We stand not having mine own righteousness, Paul said. That's not just the day we got saved. That's now. That's in the future. And that's when we stand before God. We will always come before God empty-handed. And the only thing we're presenting is the righteousness of Christ. Don't forget that. There's some great confusion out there. And uh, some people might think, well, this is just a matter of semantics. No. It is very important that when the Bible teaches something that we understand what is God saying. What is, he, was he, what is he not saying? So, imputation now, in, and we're going to look at it in, in light of original sin, and that is the imputations of Adam's sin to his posterity. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, that's the resurrection chapter, there's a verse that gives us a beautiful summary of our text today in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. That's, what, that's going to be our main text today. And really, we're going to be dealing with two aspects of imputation because Paul's angle, he's actually talking about how, uh, the, you know, what Christ did on the cross, but he's relating it to, he's, setting, he's using the imputation of Adam's sin to us as the backdrop. But here's the summary, 1 Corinthians 15.21 says this, For since by man came death, who was that man? Adam. Since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. Who was that man? Jesus Christ. And in in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, that's exactly what Paul's picture is. He's contrasting. So if you're going to understand the one imputation, then you'll understand them both. Uh, It is important that we realize then that uh, the death of all men really is not brought about 
by your, our personal sins, do you know that you are going to die not because of your personal sins, but because it all comes down on us because we were all born in Adam because of Adam's sin. Keep that in mind. <clears throat> your ability, your performance, your, you know, the accumulation of your sins, whatever it is, is not why you are going to die. Now, there's some that... In fact, there's a doctrine in this context called Pelagianism. You ever heard of Pelagianism? It's, it, it, it rejects the doctrine of original sin, and people that are, Pelagian, that are Pelagianists believe and teach that you can become sinlessly perfect. It's just your choice. you just got to stop sinning. It's a piece of cake. You know, I almost wish they were right. Wouldn't it be great if we could stop sinning? You know, but, and we can resist temptation. There's no temptation that needs to defeat us. But folks, this, that is not what the Bible teaches. And by the way, if, just imagine that the reason men die is because they sin. Not because it was passed down to us from Adam, but because we sin. You know, it would be pretty evident that someone that lived a very debauched... And sometimes this happens because people that get into drugs and all, they die prematurely. But folks, it's very clear that there are people that do good that die in their 20s and 30s. I mean, they're still sinners. And in fact, if the thing that caused us to die, if it was like, okay, God says, I'm going to give each one of you What's a number of sins that we could, uh, you know, 500,000 sins? I mean, I'm just, I'm just, you know, God says, okay, 500,000 sins. You tally up how many you do each day and each year and figure it out. So let's say God said, okay, I'm going to give you each 500, is that too many? It'll, it's just hypothetical. 500,000 sins and then you're going to die. Folks, that would be so easily provable. Would it not be? You would st- study all the, the um, what do you call those people that live this? They're super centen- centenarians. Um, and, and they always have an article on who is the oldest living person at this time. Uh, one of the more recent ones, uh, and a lot of them are from Japan. You ever notice that? What are they eating? Or what are they not eating? I, we should probably ask. But So the last one, or the one, one of these recent articles I pulled up, was in March of 2022. And at that point, the oldest person alive was a, a Japanese lady named Kane Tanaka. Uh, and she, in fact, she would end up dying on uh, January, actually, when it was uh, sometime this last year. She was 119 years old, 119 years, 117 days. And I love looking at these articles because it seems. It seems like if you're going to interview someone that's like 110, 115, the question they always ask is, what's your secret to longevity? And I always find that interesting over the years. I, I love, it's not like there's one thing. Oh, I just, um, in fact, one lady that was a Baptist lady that was in her 110 plus, she was interviewed, and you know, what's the, what's the secret to your longevity? And she says, it's keeping the Ten Commandments, you know. Well, if she was pretty good at it, maybe she would live to be 160. But I noticed that, like, for example, this, this lady from Japan, this uh, 
Kane Tanaka. She lived almost to be 120 years old. She was born in 1903 and died in 1922 this year. 1903. I mean, that's, can you imagine that? And you know what she said the secret? To, in fact, a, a couple of them I read. One guy said, I drink Coors Light every morning. And, you know, and this lady said, uh, my key is I drink chocolate and fizzy drinks. I assume that's soda. Chocolate and fizzy drinks. Now, you and I might read something like that and think, oh, that's the key. I've got to drink more chocolate and fizzy drinks. We're going to start going home. We're going to start chugging chocolate fizzy drinks. I guess what is, what's the carbonated chocolate? Yoo-hoo, whatever it is. You know, we just got to start drinking that. Is that the, the key to longevity? No, folks, you and I that are born in Adam all have a death sentence on us. Wherefore, Romans 5, in fact, turn into, if you're in Romans right now, verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. It is important for you and I to realize where we get our sin nature. Um, but here's the important thing. That Paul's purpose uh, to illustrate the doctrine that he is teaching is he, to teach that we are delivered from sin and death by the same way in which we are we're delivered from sin and death by the same way in which we are brought into condemnation. Uh, he is saying that men are condemned on the account of the imputation of the guilt of Adam's sin. And so, men are justified on the, by the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. In the same way. That, this, is, this is his example in Romans chapter 5, 12 through 21. He's using, that's why we're talking about two imputations here. Is that His main thing is he's talking about how the righteousness of Christ is attributed to us. But he's using the example of the first man that sinned and as how his sin was passed on us. And he's using this example. I want you to look at verse 13. He says, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. He's talking about pre-Moses, when God gave the commandments. And, and when Adam sinned, this was pre-law, uh, he says, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Verse 14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. In other words, Adam sinned, and all man from that point on was born in sin. And even though the law did not come until Moses So, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. Adam had a command. You know, he was given the law, he broke it, he sinned, and death passed upon all men. Now, the law didn't come until Moses, and now Paul's point, because he's about to use Jesus as a figure of Adam. Verse 15, But not as the offense so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, that's Adam, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. 
For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses under justification. In other words, you and I, folks, have a death sentence, and really it goes back to Adam. His sin is imputed to us. Now, before you blame Adam, remember this very clear in here, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. We, we can't just blame Adam because we also choose to sin. And now here's, here's his point, verse 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Now look at verse 19. This is important you realize. As by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, many were made sinners. That was that. The fact that we were born sin, it was imputed because of Adam. Now we could just sit there and really start beating up on Adam. We could get bitter at Adam. We could get mad at Adam. We could blame Adam. But folks, understand why Paul's bringing this out. He's not bringing this out to stir up animosity towards the one that brought sin into the world, though it was his fault. He's about ready to talk about in the same way you and I become righteous not of any fault of or any doing of our own, but because of Christ. Again, verse 19, As by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one many should be made righteous. Verse 20, Moreover, the law entered. We find now Moses comes along, and this is where we learn something about the law. The law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. The law is how God shows us. Now, before the law came, again, remember what uh, verse 13, until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Now there's the law. And this is where I want to spend a few minutes tonight talking about the importance of how the law brings conviction. One theologian, Charles Hodge, wrote this. He said, the law... Although it cannot secure either the justification or sanctification of men, performs an essential part in the economy of salvation. I love this. This theologian from days gone by said, keep in mind, he's saying, the law performs an essential part in the economy of salvation. You soul winners, anybody that wants to witness to other people and be an evangelist, You've got to understand where the law comes in. He says, It enlightens conscience and secures its verdict against a multitude of evils, which we should not otherwise have recognized as sins. Paul said in, uh, in Romans 7.9, He said, I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. The verse that I've shared many times as a young man brought up in religion, knowing the Ten Commandments and thinking they're my guide. I will never forget Romans 3.19 and 
that truth, how God used it in my life as a 17-year-old old man. Remember what Romans 3.19 says? Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, and here's the purpose of the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. For years, I was, a, I was an altar boy and I was a religious person and I was patting myself on the back. If you had talked to me as a 15 or 16 year old and said, uh, my nickname in high school was Lie, don't you call me that. But they would, if someone came up to me and said, hey Lie, if you, if you died today, where would you go? I know I would have said, well, I'm going to, I believe I'm going to heaven because I'm a pretty good guy. And I would talk about, you know, my righteousness. But then the truth of Romans 3.19 hit me because I'll never forget on the Saturday morning going through uh, Matthew 5 and 6 where Jesus said, Thou hast, thou hast heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt not d- murder. And I was good because I had never killed anyone. At the age of 17, murder was not I'd never murdered anyone. Some of you might be able to say that too. Can any of you say when you were 17, up to that point, you never killed anyone? And so, again, I'm patting myself on the back because I followed the commandments. But then I heard, both from that text in Matthew and in 1 John, that if you have anger in your heart, or in 1 John, if you have hatred in your heart, you are a murderer. And I realized, wait a minute. He's not talking about the external action of killing someone. He's talking about, have you ever wanted someone dead? Have you, ever, have you ever been so angry with someone or hated someone? And I certainly couldn't, could not defend myself anymore. The same with adultery, the same with the several of those things there. And I literally remember going through that. And I went from patting myself on the back to pointing a finger at myself. Guilty. Guilty. And only when I trembled at the law that I'd spurned did I repent of my sins and just trust Jesus Christ. You know, um, not Charles Spurgeon, John Bunyan. You ever heard of John Bunyan? I used to get him mixed up with Paul Bunyan. He's a giant that's fake, right? <laughs> right. John Bunyan was a Baptist pastor who in 1660 was arrested for preaching the gospel. Now he had just, a few years prior, had lost his first wife in sickness. Just had gotten remarried. He had, I think, five children. One of them was special needs. And because he was preaching the gospel, in 1660 he went to jail. And he spent the next 12 years in prison. But he didn't have to. All he needed to do was promise he would not preach the gospel anymore. And he wouldn't do it. So for 12 years, he sat in prison and he wrote. He wrote several works. One which would become a classic. And as Charles Spurgeon said about Bunyan, he said, if you prick him, he bleeds scripture. And if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, you see him bleeding Scripture. Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory about a man named Christian who goes on his journey through life. And it is saturated with Scriptures. 
And one of the stories, they're, they're all, I want to tell you, it is such a great book to uh, relate life, just the journey through life. And through his journey, Pilgrim uh, pairs up, or Christian pairs up with several people, comes across several people, all kinds of people, all kinds of experiences. But the one that I want to share with you is one of the best illustrations, one of the simple illustrations of how the law works. And um, so let's look at this example in, in Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan, uh, the, the, the this subject of the book is a man named Christian. And there's a man named Interpreter who leads him through certain parts of his journey. And Interpreter takes Pilgrim into a large room in his house, an interpreter's house, which symbolizes the human heart. And then I quote from Pilgrim's Progress. Then he, that's interpreter, took him by the hand and led him into a very large parlor that was full of dust because never swept, the which after he had reviewed it a little while. So he looks at this room, large room, that is full of dust, but it, all the dust is settled. Maybe like some of your living rooms, I don't know. But all the dust was settled. And, and he could see it. It was, you know, you could see the sun coming through and, and it looked fine. And the interpreter called for a man to sweep the room. Now when he began to sweep, the dust began so abundantly to fly about that Christian had almost therewith been choked. Then said the interpreter to a damsel that stood by, bring hither water and sprinkle the room. Then which, uh, when she had done, it was swept and cleaned with pleasure. Then said Christian, what means this, sir? An interpreter answered, The parlor is the heart of a man that was never sanctified by the sweet grace of the gospel. The dust is his original sin and inward corruptions that have defiled the whole man. He says, He that began to sweep at first is the law. But she that brought water and did sprinkle it is the gospel. Now whereas thou sawest that so soon as the first began to sweep... The dust did fly so about that the room um, by him could not be cleansed, but that he was almost choked therewith. This is to show thee that the law, instead of cleansing the heart by its working from sin, doth revive it. Romans 7 uh, and verse 9. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. He said it, so when... When you sweep it, it revives. It puts strength into it and increases it in the soul. Romans 5.20 Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. See, this is the wonderful purpose. And I love this picture. So there's a room that really looks fine. You might be able to see the dust, but you would probably call it maybe a clean room. But when you start to sweep the room, the dust kicks up and almost chokes you to death. And that's when the law enters. The law, and again, when the law is brought in, it makes us exceeding sinful. And only when the law does its work and shows us how horrible we are, then the water of the grace of God comes and truly cleans that room. What a picture. What a picture of how God has worked in our hearts. Have you had that happen in your life? Where... 
Maybe you justified yourself. Maybe you were like the publican in the, in the temple that was praying and so proud of himself, of all the righteous things that he did. And he looked at the, the publican with contempt. He thought he was going to his house justified. But that man never had a good sweeping in his heart, did he? Now, you see, his, all the dust was settled. He had never had the law come in and show what a filthy sinner he was. And so he's sitting there saying, I, I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I have, and, and just patting himself on the back. Whereas that publican, he had had a good sweeping, hadn't he? Because the law came in. He just, nobody needed to tell him he was a sinner. He was just so... Couldn't even look up to heaven. He was feeling so unworthy. Boy, that, that broom must have just gone in and, and he was probably still being choked to death. And then when he acknowledged his sin and he cried out to God, only one of those men went to their house justified. And it wasn't the religious guy. It was the one that saw himself as a wicked, wicked sinner. Charles Spurgeon wrote, I am bound to the doctrine of the depravity of the human heart because I find myself depraved in heart and have daily proofs that there dwelleth in my flesh no good thing. I want to ask you something. Is that the battle that is going on in your life? It actually begins when you get saved. When you get saved, it's the, it's the, the beginning of the awareness that you are a sinner unworthy of salvation. And you come to God empty-handed and He saves you. And then begins a lifelong process of just growing in the Lord and allowing His righteousness to be your righteousness. What a blessing, folks, that someday you and I will stand before God and again, we will come empty-handed. Not having our own righteousness, but that which is Jesus Christ. Are you justified tonight. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Lord, help us as we wrestle with our own sinfulness, as we are keenly aware uh, that as, as Spurgeon said, as Paul said, uh, in me dwelleth no good thing. We are sinners. And Father, we're so very grateful that Jesus Christ came and died for our sins. Lord, help us not to be proud not to be arrogant, not to justify or excuse our sins, but rather to call ourselves guilty as you call us so that we can be cleansed. Thank you, Lord. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take our hymn books out. Let's all stand.